Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, June 27th of 2023, where laypersons and pastors gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. And this Sunday text we're discussing is for July 2nd of 2023. Each Tuesday we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern to participate. And our team is working to be faithful to year A. That puts us in the Gospel of Matthew. We hope the discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the leadoff person shares some formative questions. And then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson from Tampa. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. And I'm Don Upton from Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I'll uh, I'll read the scriptures for today. It's brief, but uh, kind of a blockbuster uh, series of verses. This is Matthew 10, 40 through 42, and I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly, I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. And that's the word of the Lord. We're working with three questions today. And before Sarah Mickelson, I go to you with the first one. Uh, I'll go ahead and lay out all three because they're probably tied together in many ways. The first is, why does the explanation with its connections to multi-step relationships of the welcomings in verse 40 matters? As in, whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. The second question is, what is the prophet's reward? And is it relevant to the 21st century reader? And the third question is, we may read and speak about doing things in the name of others, but is there a clear concept or understanding of why this is done or what impacts are expected? Let's go back to the first question. Sarah, why does the explanation of the welcomings in verse 40 matter, especially these multiple connections, multi-step relationships? What do you think, Sarah? I think we need to consider Newton's three laws of motion. I know that's a big leap, but walk with me. Um, In the first law, there are three. In the first law, an object will not change its motion unless a force acts on it. That's kind of an observable test. In the second law, the force on an object that causes it to change is equal to its mass times its acceleration. So, In a third law of Newton's motions, uh, when two objects interact, they apply forces to each other of equal magnitude and opposite direction, right? So if you're going to change, like you're playing with pool balls on a pool table, how do you make one ball change direction when it's being projected in one place? It hits something, hits a ball, and it it changes course. So we can observe that on a a pool table. This made me think about concentric rings that fall or or move out from a single drop 
of something into a, a, a body of water, right? We can see that as well. Um, and I like the continuity of how things work in creation and how they echo in this particular way, this scripture. So I love the point made in this passage, which proves true throughout creation, and especially in the physical world in which we currently operate. I'm thinking about the image of the concentric rings and how each a, visually, a visual widening of each ring is an indication that something started at a point of change. A single act of welcome or compassion or kindness leads to uncountable additionable yeah, I'm having trouble talking today. Additional acts of welcome, compassion and kindness. So it's whatever starts that impetus, that one moment of, of force where two objects meet, an act of kindness or compassion can change the whole trajectory. And not only that, but it starts this snowball effect of kindness and compassion that moves through, if you will, like ripples in a, in a pond, moves through the body of Christ and, and, and the, the world in the same way. And I kind of love the implication that no matter how small this one single act of kindness is, it impacts the world for better. Um, so the message tells us that we should start small, even with a glass of water or a kind, honest word, and that those persistent, continual actions have effect and change the course of things. Um, and, and that's how I thought about Newton's laws of motion and how I imagine this single drop of water or a pebble dropping into a pond affects the way that we interact with each other. And it invited me to to move forward with this idea of welcome in, in that everybody that crosses my path, I have an opportunity with, an opportunity to be kind, an opportunity to express with some compassion, so kindness. That's what I got. Thank you. Thank you. Bill Hall, lots of welcomings here. What do you think? Yeah, uh, give me a moment, Don. My head is still spinning over Newton's lost the motion. <laughs> Excellent imagery, Sarah. I, I've been typing notes. So I need to do some more research. Thank you. I, I love that analogy. And I think what I want to say uh, builds on what I understand you to be saying to us, Sarah. Um, first of all, my brain went to the direction in which this narrative in the larger scripture works. For example, we know that in the beginning, God. So God was the first actor. At a point in time, God sent Jesus. And we've looked recently how Jesus then sent people from being disciples to being apostles. And now in this passage, um, it's reversed. It really begins with us. It, whoever welcomes you welcomes me, Christ, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, God. So it's us, Jesus, God. Now, that's a simple matter, but it, it uh, Sarah, again, it, where does this begin? Where does the action and the energy uh, begin, and I like your application of Newton's physical laws of motion 
to social uh, interaction, relationships, communities. Uh, again, you've, my head is still spinning a little, but that's okay. Um, it's safe to spin on this place. Um, the other thing that thought came to me was from a resource I check called Connections, and a um, Ph.D. student in um, religious studies, Mahi Kim Court, talks about how the motion set in place here is Jesus' democratizing the power of discipleship. I like that, that phrase because we know that Matthew ends with being sent to the whole world, not just the twelve but all followers of Christ. Um, And another quote from Miss Kim Court, the work of welcome dissolves traditional networks and engages courageous imagination in ways that help us begin to see, live into, and struggle for a different kind of reality a reality centered in the community God in Jesus Christ sought to establish in his ministry. Now, I know that's a lot of words, but I like that. Again, Sarah, a simple act of kindness can begin something that transforms a society. Many of us recently heard the president of the seminary in Hungary that we support tell his story of how uh, I, I'm sorry, Poland, uh, and I'm sorry I forget his name, but he told that when refugees began streaming across the border from Ukraine, the church didn't react and the government didn't act effectively. It was people who drove to the border and took people to their homes. He told us that there was not a single refugee camp in Poland for the Ukraine refugees, that people, and eventually, by his interpretation, the government and the church were compelled to to begin to do something. Um, And then yesterday, Allison Kelly, who is our director of children and families at Palmasia, was on the Monday morning podcast, A Fresh Look at the Lectionary, and she reminded us of the um, woman at the well, giving Jesus a drink of water in the heat of the day. And it made me think, and and I thought of this, Sarah, while you were speaking, this term that developed some time ago, random acts of kindness. And physics is not my strong suit, but I've heard my son talk often with passion about chaos theory, where supposedly a butterfly's flapping its wings can lead to changes that are very powerful and different. And it reminds me of John 21, where Jesus meets the disciples at the seashore. They're dispirited. Peter is appropriately feeling guilty. And what does Jesus do? He has breakfast ready, helps them land a record amount of, of fish. So, um, Again, thank you, Sarah. Um, small beginnings can have powerful effect. Thanks. And, and I, I just want to build on this then, because where is, where is this new science of Christ taking place? 
So I'll go to the setting. It, uh, the eternal, the evo- evocation of the eternal is domestic. I know I talk about that a lot, but it's home and hearth. It's domestic. Everybody, all together, the little ones. And that can be interpreted in many ways, the little ones, everybody. And, you know, when I was a younger person, I would read this and go, oh, prophet, insert prophet. This is tough. I don't know. I don't know. But it's no, you can't look at it without looking at the whole ecosystem of humanity. And you insert all into it. But I like the setting for what both of you are putting out, which is home and hearth everybody and in their time and place too and uh, i i i was uh helped by mark davis who when he was dealing with especially with this first verse uh, talking about welcoming and he just tied it in translation to taking the hand physical walking with arm and i'm expanding on it now arm and arm with who well it's prophet there and then the need to actually, in the language, confront the fact that it means it. Prophet. I'm uncomfortable with that, but okay, let's go. And here, the fact of a prophet in the space, in the room, arm and eye, how do we deal with that? I think it's a really great challenge. So I like the walking, and I like the welcoming, ing, 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 doing, 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 doing. Uh, when I was a little boy and I first uh, went across this, I thought welcoming had to do with uh, the front door, the stoop, uh, the dinner table. Hello, you're welcome, the front end. I don't think that has anything to do with this. Maybe a little teeny part, but welcoming every day, welcoming, learning, welcoming, doing, serving, more welcome, more welcome. If if I thought used it like I did it when I was a little boy, you walk across the hearth and you can come in and break all the dishes. But you were welcome. That's not the that's not the point of this. This has got a life to it. It goes on, uh, and the welcoming spirit, if you tie it to the rest of Matthew, I think has to do with being a seeker too. All are seeking together, arm and arm. And then there's this cross accountability. When I was a little boy, I would read it and go, you know, is the accountability on the welcoming and the receipt of the prophet? Everybody, everybody's engaged here, engaged here. And if someone's acting as a prophet, they have responsibilities too. Think carefully about the seeking and the relationships going forward. All together, all together, arm in arm. Well, Bill, let's go on to the second question, which is what is a prophet's reward and is it relevant to the 21st century reader? Yes, uh, I noted that the word welcome occurs six times, reward occurs three times. <laughs> and wh- when I first started working on your questions, Don, and got to this one, I revisited something I experienced early in my ministry after I finished seminary. And I mentioned before that I had a special kind of situation in that I lived in and served in a low-income community and was on the staff of a large, wealthy church about two miles away. So I was living in two worlds. And part of the attraction was I got to preach every Sunday at the chapel. After about four or five weeks of doing that and people talking to me about the sermons I began to feel good about myself and liked being important to people. And then I had a a kickback reaction. Oh, wait a minute. 
I'm not supposed to feel that way. So, uh, you know, there were rewards. And it, it was the idea in some ways initially is off-putting, Don. So your question helped me revisit that because we know in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 4, do your good deeds in secret. Pray in a closet, not seeking recognition and, and praise. So I'm not saying I've arrived on this, but in my early pastorate, what I finally came to understand was that having acknowledged that it can feel uncomfortable to talk about rewards in ministry, I have come to believe that Jesus is talking about what we now call alignment. When we seek to set our moral and behavioral compass to the true north of Jesus Christ, there are results and reactions, some positive, some negative. And that leads to a sense of imperfect but real acts of congruence with the spirit of Jesus Christ. And I will admit, the the word reward still engenders a little discomfort in me, but I can identify with that. So I think this understanding of rewards in that way, Don, is relevant. The question is, am I seeking to be congruent? I will never do it perfectly. There will never be perfect congruence, but um, it reminds me in seminary, the first year, first class on um, pastoral care, I was looking, I PhD professor, renowned uh, student and practitioner of the insights of counseling in the church world, and his first lecture was he got up to the chalkboard, which dates me, <laughs> and drew three large circles. And he said, in a sense, the goal of ministry, it, one circle is how I see myself. One is how God sees me. The third is how others see me. That the more those three can intersect and that how God sees me, how I see myself, and how others see me are in some congruent and he said you will never get all three perfectly aligned so that had a, an effect on me now some examples recently I read two books The Fall of the House of Dixie by Bruce Levine and The Trial of the Century Calvin and Servetus by Jonathan Moorhead The Fall of the House of Dixie is about the lead up to the Civil War the most frequent reference to pastors in that book are to Presbyterian pastors who supported slavery. From my perspective, they were out of congruence. Hindsight is 2020. Calvin and Servetus, you may or may not know that story. Servetus was a um, was deemed. Uh, apostate, um, and he denied the Trinity, and he was burned at the stake. The book counters the popular idea that Calvin was in charge and Calvin ordered his execution. Calvin supported it, but he did not uh, order it. The, the council did. Again, 
Christians applauding themselves for helping the kingdom of God by killing uh, fellow uh, Christians. Um, again, we need humility because it raises for me the question, how am I still out of congruence? And therefore, in the healthy sense of the word, missing the rewards of ministry. I'll leave it there, Don. <laughs> well, one of the reasons I, I asked the question is just comfort for being asked to insert profit into this. That's so why I spent this week examining, and, and for those that are moderating discussion groups around this, you know, maybe one of the questions is, what is a profit? Before you ask it, just as a matter of literary scholarship, the writer is asking us to insert profit. Who do I who do I think a profit is? I think we're challenged to think about that. And I think I've been inserting the wrong thing. Now, I'm just putting that as, this out as a personal opinion. Um, uh, that I've been inserting profit in ways that aren't helpful, square peg, round hole. And maybe I wasn't inserting profit in the way that it was meant to be. So I went back and took a look at it. And thought about, you know, instead of thinking about the isolated profit, the judgmental profit, the pro, you know, I, that there's something else here. We are asked to insert the fact of a profit, right? So I would even say to someone that just reads this as just pure literature, are you asked to do it? Yes, I am. That's what, that's what, the re, that's what their authors asked me to do. And so what is a profit? And the thing that I think ties it, that allows us to, to put it right in, with comfort is profit is associated with a common language that reflects the creator, accessibility, whether we like it or not, truth telling, but it's about language. It's about understanding. And so me being, you know, standing back from the prophet, it's like the prophet's language is meant to, to message something, to share something, to translate something. So a prophet is a translator. Well, I'm not uncomfortable with that. A prophet as someone with foresight, not, necess- not, not God-like, but somebody that has, check this out, a working knowledge of what's going on between the eternity and the domestic, what's going on between the creator and our daily lives in time, at that time in the first century and today. I'm not uncomfortable with that. And I would, I would challenge you to think, have you ever used the language of working knowledge? I hire people. I search for people. I go, you know what I really like? Someone have a working knowledge of this. To communicate that in plain speaking. To have the language to do it. They've been there, done that. They've seen it. They understand what's to come. They understand the relationship between us and other forces. That sounds, I'm okay with that. And that they have an understanding of how that dynamic works. So I'm like, language, translation, Foresight, understanding, working knowledge, profit. All right, now I can insert that. I'm okay with that. So it's relevant to the 21st century if we see the life of the prophet as using language that reflects the creator, the foresight, the grounded foresight, what I would call, you know, if you're hiring somebody, what's the working knowledge, and an understanding. Now, I'm not trying to push aside the eternal like it ain't there. I'm saying this is so domestic and approachable that we can talk about profits in our daily lives. So this is how it operates in life. And wake up, what is the reward? That's what I'm getting to. What is the reward if those things are accessible 
And it is the reward of waking up and going to bed with a prophet's reward, which is the joy of having a working knowledge of service and what the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount means, what the grace of God really means in terms of following the way, uh, using the language with delight that you can connect to the eternal, using foresight of the working knowledge on a daily basis, back to Mark Davis, hand in hand, arm in arm, and the basic understanding which is accessible, truth-telling, but truth-telling a domestic daily life basis. So, you know, I went. I went a long way. It took me only forty or fifty years to get there. But you know, I for your for your consideration, profit is fully access, accessible, and the reward is alive profit, not future profit. Today, the delight, the delight in having those things. That's the reward today. Today, right now, as we're talking, that's the delight. That's the reward. Those are my thoughts, Sarah. But what about you? What do you think about? Is it even relevant to the 21st century reader? So a couple things have to have. I mean, you have to have some foundational stuff going on, right, before we get to profit. First, there has to be an open communication between God and an individual, a relationship, a trusting, acknowledgement relationship, an understanding of you are God and I am not. There's that firm foundation of that information. Um, and then the prophet is instructed or charged, empowered to bear a message, right? So you become a message bearer for God. And usually you're sent to specific groups, places, cultures, opportune moments, right? So you might be sent to Nineveh, like Jonah. You might be sent to... Um, sit like Elijah <laughs> to uncomfortable places. You might be asked to speak truth to a situation that is dangerous. And I think we should all be prepared for that, whether it's standing up for a population of people who've been enslaved. Um, maybe uh, the word abolitionist would come to mind. Um, you might be asked to um, run for a particular seat in a particular body of politics um, to, to, to call out and to speak truth to something. So um, I understand a prophet's reward to be first you have a relationship with God, a, a firsthand working knowledge kind of relationship where you receive instruction and you act on it. Um, there is a lot of distance between that and the common situation that most people have. Um, I think that being a prophet could go either way. You could be stoned like Stephen. You could be hunted, you know, um, like Elijah, and hide in a cave and be told to come out and God's going to go by. Um, it could be that you're going to be welcomed. It could be that a widow is going to start to share the meager amount of food and foodstuffs that she has with you so that you can stand in that community and speak truth into that world. So it's the recognition that it could go either way. But what you're compelled to do is unrelenting. Um, 
I think that there's an acknowledgement of wisdom. When you stand in a relationship, you, you get perspective. God shares a little bit of perspective with you. Um, so I think about that. I think of the blessing and the peace that normally comes where you're welcomed. And, and, and knowing that you have God as your backup is kind of an important thing. And I think that gives you a sense of peace. And it's a resonance that you'll find something in common, the promise that there will be somebody that will respond. Um, and I, I, I really liked what you said, Don, about the joy of working knowledge. Because if it's part of your passion, then when somebody taps you and goes, I don't understand, you can go, could it be this? Have you? What, what if it was this? What if it could be part of this particular equation or this particular story, and suddenly the opportune moment for the person bearing the message gets the opportunity to speak. And you may not know that you're being a message bearer. It might just be one of those spirit things that happens in the in the moment. Thank you. Uh, final question, and Sarah, let's stick with you if that's okay. We may read and speak about doing things in the name of others, but is there a clear concept or understanding of why this is done or what impacts are expected? So the center of that question is doing things in the name of others. Sarah? I'm thinking about what makes an emissary or an ambassador. A person empowered to act, speak, represent the interest of someone or an entity like someone with power of attorney or a guardian ad litem um, or a healthcare surrogate. Uh, on any given day, who might you be asked to represent? I know I'm asked to be a representative of my family, my employer, my culture, my teachers, my faith, my faith community, my God. Um, and going back to the idea of one moment, incident or action, standing as the impetus for a wave of good or of loving kindness. Perhaps this points back to what started the change, a conversation, or what was the source that started the action that you would take, a remembrance of what yielded the change of heart. And that's bearing witness. And that's what we're asked to do. Um, I think the spirit is at play in this. Um, the idea of being the hands and feet of Christ in the world puts us in a position where we are empowered to act as living witnesses for what we believe and who we believe in and, and what we're called and how we're called to respond to each other. Um, sometimes, it's holding back, like giving a cup of water to the least of these, is saving the best of something for someone thought to be the least significant. Um, promoting them into a place of value or importance and, and giving them the opportunity to contribute. And I think one of the challenges we each have is we want to be included. We want to be valued. And we want to have meaningful relationships with each other. So this particular action 
of being an emissary or an ambassador who in the name of someone else or more profoundly in because of someone else you're able to have that moment and i think about organ donation and i think about people whose lives have been saved by profound um sacrifice in the military um that, that we're standing here because they gave something to us whether it was a kidney or our um a heart or whether it was the opportunity to take a deep breath and have democracy in this world those are all characteristics of what it looks like to to do something in the name of someone else now i will say that there have been terrible moments in history where we have acted in the name of someone else and done horrible things so i think we have cautionly cautionly i think we have to move with caution um or cautiously when we look for congruencies with the message of Christ so that we don't do harm in the name of Christ but that's kind of where i was going with that thank you um when i was looking at it i even though i made it 21st century question you know in terms of relevance today i haven't thought a lot recently about what it is to do something in the name of anybody like that uh it seems archaic sometimes and i think it's good to approach it like that but i i'm going to use a 20th century saying that helped me which is it's not a re- naming something's not a reference but it's a hardwiring to the truth direct, strong, and it helped me think about what it's not. So doing something in the name is not the stereotype, which would be a name evoked to exert power uh, in the name of the king, in the name of the law, in the name of the law, in the name of the empire, I command you. It's, it has less to do, I think, with the threat, but more to the hardwiring to the truth, which can be very powerful on its own. Uh, or in a TV sitcom, I'm telling my dad, not, not like that. It's, uh, I think it's meant to be uh, kind of an in-breaking, that, that I have the ability to have something else, someone else, someone's life, someone's truth, to break into a conversation or to an ecosystem or a household. I have the ability to evoke. I do this because someone that I came to love did this. And it's an act of selflessness and humility in a way. Well, that was so sweet of you to do that. I'm Here comes the end breaking. I do this in the name of this person, to honor this person. I do this in the name of Christ. That it, it it breaks in. Not about me. I'm just making this. It's more than a reference. I'm t- I'm a truth teller, in doing that. So I think I hadn't thought about it this way. That it's um, it is an in breaking, if we choose, and by bringing that name up, 
which allows us to be storytellers. Why, why do you reference that person? I reference that person because the light went on with me when, 20 years ago. I had no idea. I learned, and I saw. I saw the working knowledge in terms of a problem. I saw the working. I saw how it worked. And so I am now going to name. I'm going to name for you. And here it comes. I'm not just, it's not an idea, right? It's not a concept. It's not a theory. I'm going to name it. And it's embodied in the Son of Man. Different. And, and I, I feel really comfortable saying that's the inbreaking, but I have an accountability in my own heart to search myself to see you know, when does that inbreaking need to be evoked? What do I need to say? I learned this. I have a working knowledge now, too. And I'm rewarded by that. And I want you to know where it came from. Bill, what do you think? Um, as you noted earlier, the key phrase here in question three is in the name of others. And it reminded me how so often we are acting as it were on behalf of someone else or others in the name of others. Frederick Dale Bruner has a two-volume commentary on Matthew that I read each week. In volume one, he helpfully uh, notes the two words here, prophet and righteous person. Now, again, Don, I was a little uncomfortable with the word rewards. I'm a little uncomfortable calling myself righteous. <laughs> I may joke about it, but it, it's a little discomforting. But he says a prophet speaks God's word, a righteous person lives God's word. Again, congruence. And both are, as it were, acting on behalf of another or through the influence of them. A prophet speaks not his or her own word, but the word of the Lord. And I'm sure our audience knows that in the Bible, prophet is not primarily about foretelling the future. It's about proclaiming God's message in the here and now, which affects the future and from which we may, and if you go this way, there will be good results. If you go another bad, in that sense, it, involve, it could involve the future. Now, I don't know about others. But I grew up in a time when my grandparents and parents, as I got older, and my brother and sister and I would say, Bill, remember, you represent our family. There was a concern about how the family would look based on my behavior. And I kept that in mind. In the same way, we represent God, not perfectly, not with perfect congruence, but we represent God. And the Greek, uh, there's a place at which in this passage it says giving a cup of water to little ones. The Greek word is micros, from which we get our English words micro, managing, microscopic. It, it means a, a very a small thing. And Little ones doesn't just mean children. It can mean marginalized people. Uh, Matthew 25, hungry, in prison, naked, uh, ill. That when we do something seemingly 
microscopic, <laughs> micro, uh, to those in need. And, and sometimes I'm the little one. Uh, there are moments in my life when I felt vulnerable or discouraged or confused. And when I look back, God placed often very surprising people and resources uh, before me. And I've referenced Matthew 25. When you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. Um, in seminary, I heard a sermon on that, and the minister ended by saying, we think as Christians, when we see someone who is struggling, we're, we may want to say there, but by the grace of God, go I. He said, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, there goes Jesus Christ. I've never forgotten that sermon and that phrase. And when I remember that, it puts what I do in perspective. That person, even someone whose behavior I may not approve of and whose behavior is self and other destructive, somehow that person was also created in the image of God. And there's great power when we can remember that. Thank you for the questions. Don. Thank you. Great getting back into those three, only three verses. And looking forward to continuing the journey all the way through the summer. Uh, for those of you listening in, uh, Palmasia Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. Every week we commend that site to you for great sermons, other discussions of the gospel lectionary, disagreements, debates, reflections, prayers, meditations, outstanding music. So check that out. And you're always welcome. We'll see you next time.